Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Up next, Out Loud with John O'Caldwell, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. Earlier this month, Joe Biden became the first American president not to use the word God in his National Day of Prayer proclamation. With the Democratic Party becoming more radical and the left overtaking the culture, are we witnessing the end of faith in public life? I certainly hope not. Or will faith make a comeback? Today, I try to find the answers. This is Out Loud with Gianna Caldwell. But today on Out Loud with Gianna Caldwell, I'm very excited to have a guest who I have a profound respect for. And the reason for that profound respect is because you rarely see an elected official who brings God into the workplace. And it's an honor to welcome on Bill Haslam, who is the former governor of Tennessee. Thank you for joining the program, Governor. Hey, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Oh, absolutely. We're, We're blessed to have you. Now, let me ask you this, because Before we jump into your book, which is titled Faithful Presence, The Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square, why don't you tell me about your background professionally? Because you have a really interesting background. You've been on the board of Saks Fifth Avenue and you've done tremendously well. So for a guy to do so well as you've done and jump into politics is pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, so I'll give you the short form, actually. No, we don't need the short form. Just tell us. All right, I'll I'll give you the medium form. Uh, You you don't want to be here all day either. So I actually was in in college, thought I would be a pastor. And uh, my plan was to to, uh, teach high school for a couple of years and then be a pastor. And uh, my father said, you know, if you're going to be a pastor, you might be good to be around business for a couple of years. And then you'd have exposure to that. And then people, you'd, you'd at least understand that world uh, if uh, if you're in a church. And went to work in business for a couple of years and ended up deciding I wasn't called to be a pastor and ended up liking business um, and stayed doing in, in the business world for 20 years, first with our family business that has a chain of truck stops across the country, and then went to work for Saks. So this is in the the new days of the Internet. Literally, it was Internet retailing was brand new. This is the late 90s and kind of help them take their business online, which was interesting because I'm not a technical guy and I know nothing about fashion, but uh, the guy that was running the company just said, hey, I'd like somebody just with some, you know, the ability to build a team here that can make this happen. So I did that. And then right after I finished that up, some folks came to me and said, hey, you should think about running for mayor of Knoxville. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And I laughed and said, you, you got the wrong guy. I, lit- I said, I have, literally have no interest. But I said, well, you should think and pray about it. And it's kind of hard to say, no, I'm not going to think and pray about it. Uh, 
And so I did, and I'd been meeting every Friday morning with a group of guys, kind of an accountability group for 25 years. And I brought it to them thinking they would laugh. And they said, we, we think you should think and pray about that, and we'll pray with you. And same thing with my wife. And I thought she would go, no, please don't do that, you know. Um, the only thing that would be, you know, uh, worse than being married to a pastor would be uh, being married to a politician. Uh, but she said, uh, you know, I, th- I think you should be serious about this and, uh, and and pursue it. So ran for mayor and loved it. It's just, you know, calling, they say, is kind of where your desires meet the world's needs. And that's what being mayor was like of my own hometown. So ran in 2003, barely won, really close election. Ran in 2007 and won again, and then uh, same process, running for governor, thinking about it, praying about it, talking to a lot of people. Ran in 2010, and, and I mean, being governor of your own home state is, is, is a, in my opinion, one of the best jobs there is. So ran in 2010, reelected in 2014, and been out of office for about two years now. Yeah, and you, you did fairly well in the primary, too. It seems as though there was a lot of respect for you uh, running for, for these particular offices. Well, I think so. You know, uh, political races sometimes are about timing, right? I mean, there's times when the wind's blowing one way and happens to be your way. At other times, sometimes you have a tailwind, sometimes you have a headwind. Uh, and so, as I said, my very first mayor's race was really close. And then after that, we didn't have too many close ones, which is a lot. I can tell you this, election nights when you're ahead by double digits are a lot more fun than when you're sweating <laughs> out the last precinct coming. Just more of a celebration there. And I tell you, being a pastor in some ways can can be like an elected official because you're meant to serve. It's just a lot of politicians forget the serving part. Well, so. actually, actually, I tell people that if if you and I swap jobs and you, you know, I went to be a pastor and you went to be a, in, in office, you'd go, this feels really familiar because it's a lot of relationships and it's also a lot of deciding between good things and other good things or bad things and worse things. You know, uh, we're trying to decide, are you going to put in the budget, you know, more money for mental health issues or to pay teachers more or to help more disabled children? Well, there's not a bad idea there, right? But you can't afford to do everything you want. It's like at a church, like we're going to spend more on our middle school program or our worship or our outreach, you know, and there's not a bad idea there, but right, you can't do everything. So, I tell my friends who are pastors that you, you could go be a mayor or governor and it would feel a lot a lot more uh, familiar than you might think. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what's really, really interesting about you, I think, is Forbes, Forbes has said, I believe it was Forbes, said that you had a net worth of about $2 billion. So you go from a businessman who's been extraordinarily successful to the public life. You don't need the job. You really have a servant's heart at that point one could imagine. And you decide you're going to get out there, you're going to do it, and you're going to make a difference in people's lives, and you end up succeeding. Well, I hope so. I mean, listen, the reason I ran was this, and it's 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 really the reason I wrote the book. It's easy in today's world for people just to give up on the public square on politics and say, "Boy, I hate both of them. I hate both sides." You know, I don't I don't want to hear any more of this. But if we really do care about the common good, if we really do care to seek the places of the, uh, the peace of the places where God has called us, the leverage that you can bring in a government role is huge. I mean, like we decided we want to put in a free community college program for everybody in the state. We could do that. I couldn't do that in a private citizen. I don't, 
I don't care how much money you have, you know. Uh, we decided we want to improve access uh, for folks. Well, you know, uh, you know, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or, who, you know, whoever you want to pick, Jeff Bezos, they might have all the money they want to do everything in the world, but they can't build their own interstate system. And in government, you really do have the ability to leverage uh, serving a lot of people if you'll take it as that opportunity. Absolutely. And you brought God with you. Let's jump into the book. So this book will be released Tuesday, May 25th. In the book, you argue that faith can actually be a redemptive and unifying force in the public square. As I'm sure you know, some people will find this argument controversial as our culture has become increasingly secular and woke. If you wouldn't mind to tell us a bit about why you wrote the book, why now? Yeah, I think two two things. One, there's a lot of believers who would say, you know, the the public square is it's too messy of a place for believers. Um, You can't I can do a lot more good other places. But uh, Martin Luther had a quote. I'm going to butcher this. It isn't exactly right. But he said, send your very best to public uh, service because the ambiguities of uh, of life there take a real wisdom. He said, hey, in preaching, the Holy Spirit does all the work. Uh, now, I, I don't 100 percent agree with him on that. But but you get the point like we, we can't abandon the public square to people who are just going to be in it for their own purposes instead of to serve the common good. Um, so that's one reason. The second is this. Hey, it doesn't it did, it's no secret that this country is incredibly divided. Right. I mean, it's um, our, our presidential elections are close. The Senate, the U.S. Senate's divided 50 50. The House is six seats difference out of 435. But we're not just divided. We're mad and we we're mad at people on the other side. And we think not only are they wrong, but they have bad motives. And everybody's looking around and go, like, I don't like this environment. I don't like this atmosphere. Somebody needs to change it. Um, and the reality is the media is not going to change it. Their, their, their job is to stoke outrage. And the political parties aren't going to change it. Their job is to elect their candidates. Well, my proposal here is what if people of faith could say, we want to be salt so that this meat doesn't go bad. We want to be light for this darkness. Uh, we want to bring, as people who understand the need for justice and mercy, we, we, we know you need both. We want to bring that to the public square um, and do what God has asked us to do, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Wow. Now, that, I think that's, a, especially quoting the scriptures, that's really powerful. Now, a lot of folks seemingly don't follow that bl- blueprint in the same way uh, that you just mentioned. And as a person of faith, as a person who've operated in public life as a a person of faith, and one can argue a lot of politicians talk about faith and Christianity and religion, but then there's folks that talk about it and there's people who do live it. And I don't know you personally, but if I can look at your life just from a glimpse digitally, it looks like you've done uh, pretty well, not just financially and professionally, but you, you tried to live out a life that um, I think one one that God would appreciate or, or like or love or whatever, however you want to phrase that. So as, as a man of faith, can you talk about what religion, what role religion has played in your life? Yeah, listen, I would have never run for office if it wasn't for my faith. Uh, I would have, you know, there's a lot easier things to do, quite frankly. Um, but I honestly felt like this is what I was called to do. Now, uh, my wife used to laugh during the elections, like, 
okay, you're called to run. The election will determine if you're called to serve uh, and uh, in office. Uh, but I think what I think what you're hitting on is a really key thing. Unfortunately, too many people in the political process use God rather than seeking to be used by God. And that's a there's a big difference there. And that's a big temptation. But, you know, Scripture doesn't take lightly when we use our faith for our own ends. I mean, do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts? And, you know, everybody's giving away everything they have, their possessions, and they act like they do, but they really have it. And, you know, God doesn't treat that lightly. So they were acting like something they weren't. And for us as believers to try to act like something that we're not in the public square in order to gain some advantage, that's using God. And we shouldn't take that. We shouldn't take that lightly. We're talking to Bill Haslam, the former two term governor of the great state of Tennessee. We've got much more with him on his new book, Faith and Politics, after a quick break. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the Natural Hybrid, Hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Critics, especially now, you're talking about on a national stage, Critics probably say faith and religion are divisive and will bring, breed more hate and polarization in our, in our society. 
I'm really intrigued by how you responded to that in office because a lot of that kind of conversation started in the early 2000s around the Obama era, at least from what I can recall. I'm a little younger uh, maybe than you, but I remember a lot of that starting around that time. Yeah, there, there's no question it heated up some then, but I would argue it's it's all, our politics have always been pretty heated in this country from the very beginning. But here's what I'd say, and you say, well, why could, you know, how people, a lot of people would say, I don't buy the premise. I don't buy the premise that people of faith can make a difference in the public square. Hey, here's what I'd say is this. You know, James talks about what uh, wisdom from above looks looks like. And he says, wisdom that's from above, and that's what we should be looking for in, in office or as pastors or in business or anything. Wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And if I said, if I went out and you and I walked down the street and we interviewed passersby in a totally secular context and said, tell me what people of faith act like in the public square. Not many would say open to reason, sincere, gentle, pure, open to, you know, full of mercy. We wouldn't get described that way. We'd get described as they really want to make their point. They really want to win the argument. And my, I guess my argument in the book is this, as believers, we believe in truth. So this isn't about being mushy and isn't about just being kind of in the moderate middle, no matter where that leaves you. This is about saying we want to get to the best answer. And if we think of our role is to serve the common good, then our, our role is to get to the best answer, not just our answer. The best answer. And when it comes to issues that are very divisive that the left continues to push today, you talk about um, abortion is one that comes up fairly often. And I know you're pro-life. Um, thank you for that. And so am I. Uh, when, when it comes to those kind of issues, the best answer is what the Bible says, choose life, is it not? It is. So that, that that's that's a great example. So thanks for bringing that up. So what I'd say is I'm not asking you to change this idea that, you know, life begins at conception and that, you know, we're, we're all created in the image of God. And so taking that life at, you know, in the womb is, 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 is destroying and is attack is killing somebody that's truly created in the image of God. I'm not asking you to change that. I'm just saying this. What if you approached the conversation in a different way? Uh, here's what my point is. Christians act just like everyone else. We're just as likely to send the hateful email. We're just as likely in the argument to try to come up with a clever put down that will say, ha, see, I won the argument. But if our goal is to get to truth and not just to win the argument, I'd ask you this. Has anybody ever changed your mind when they've come with a really clever put down of your position? No, not quite. No, no. So you don't. It actually just makes you dig in. So I'm saying, do we really trust God in saying Rather than coming to this public discussion with hatred for the other side and with a desire to win the argument, what if we came as people who are uh, who are humble and gentle and yet committed to the truth? And I think we I'm, here's my point as Christians, we uh, we serve a God who exhibited what love and truth looks like at the same time. Right. That's what the cross is about. It's about. Uh, justice, that we needed someone to die for us, 
in mercy a God who is willing to do that for us. And so of all people, we should be people who bring to the public discussion this idea of bringing justice and mercy at the same time. Justice and mercy. And that, and that kind of brings me to something I was talking about on air earlier today. We are talking about the defund the police movement, you, specifically in, in New York City, um, as an example, uh, shootings went up 97 percent. Uh, homicides went up 44 percent. That was in 2020. Uh, this year, 25 percent in violent assaults, uh, felony assaults, I should say. Uh, and you have that's one side of it. Defund the police. We need to t- strip all their resources away. They, they shouldn't be involved in any much of anything. No public safety. And then you have another side, um, the Black Lives Matter side, who who advocates for similar things, but they're not necessarily to defund the police movement, but they've been a part of that conversation. So when you bring in the sides to the table that support the police holistically, they may want to see some incremental changes, but maybe not an overarching reform of the police. How do you bring all these three sides to the table to have the conversation? You ask really good practical questions, by the way, because that's what it comes down to. So I, I'm, I would definitely never be in favor of defunding the police because, you know, it is when people march through the streets saying no justice, no peace, they're saying we want justice. We want we want the bad guys to get caught. And that's what we all want. Right. We all want if somebody's doing something wrong, we want them to get, you know, to, 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 to stop that. Um, and so but I would say what. There's probably is some real value for us in listening to the argument of why does that feel? Why do you have such a different view about law enforcement than I do uh, to that person? And understanding there there's some pain in there, maybe from some unjust treatment, right? I mean, it's uh, listen, I got you know, I have I have too many friends who are um, who are black men who say, hey, I still get worried every time I get pulled over in the car, in a way that I don't. Okay, so. I'd argue that helps me when I have friends that I respect and love and they're they're, you know, they're out doing doing what they're supposed to be doing and they get pulled over and they're terrified. And I think that would never strike me to be terrified. I'd be, you know, like, hey, why are you pulling me over? Um, so it helps me understand that. I, do I agree with their solution or their answer of defund the police? No, no, I don't. I think it's a really bad idea. And I think people would. Once they had that, they'd be saying, oops, we, we picked the wrong door. So if I'm hearing you correctly, are you saying first, try to understand. Try to understand where the other side is coming from so you can have the conversation versus what we see a lot in politics is more so arguing um, across each other. No one's listening. No one's really trying to have the conversation. It's all about sound bites and talking points. And, and getting a slam dunk on Twitter where you get a, a million retweets. Bingo. I, I, I'm Bill Haslam and I approve that message. What you just said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, cause, because listen, the, getting that slam dunk on Twitter feels good, but it doesn't change anybody's mind, right? It doesn't change one person's mind. Uh, now, a lot of people on your side will retweet it and you'll go, wow, cool, look. You know, look how many retweets I got. But you didn't change one person on the other side's mind. Uh, nor would I say... You, you know, remember this, we're the people who are supposed to love our enemies. Okay, that's really hard, particularly in today's world. And, you know, you get you look at what's happening in social media interchanges and go, wow, it's really hard to love that person right now. But 
that's what we're called to do. And that's that's really hard. People ask, is it hard to be a Christian politician? I'm like, yeah, it's really, really hard to love your enemies when they're taking shots at you 24 hours a day. Um, but but again, that's still what we're called to do. And I think here's the other point I'd make is this. People come to me all the time and say, Bill, you don't understand what you're talking about. You don't understand how high the stakes are. We're literally battling for the soul of America here. And you're wanting to, us to bring a pillow to a knife fight. Okay. Uh, and there's too much at stake to act the way that you talk about. I said, well, we don't say in, in other things that we should suspend God's rules for that. Like you need to be ethical in your business unless you're about to go bankrupt and then you can do whatever you want. You know, we don't say you should be faithful to your wife unless somebody really, really attractive comes. You know, we don't, we don't do that. We say God's truth is God's truth. In politics, we say, we don't really want to act the way God asked us to because the stakes are so high. That's a good point. And as a, a transition point, I want to ask you about that because you were saying keep the consistency. And as believers, we have to model a particular behavior. Now, how do you respond to some of the things that President Trump might have said, uh, whether it be on television or interviews? And, you know, we can be honest and, and I'm, I have no qualms about it. I think President Trump has done a lot of good from a policy perspective. But there were areas in which he was divisive. And I also understand that folks on the left are very divisive. I get that. What do you say in, in regard to that when it, the, President Trump, some of the things that he have said or done that were divisive? You know, I think you're right. I mean, it, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I think part of President Trump's style was to try to divide the country, find some really hot button issues and try to get a, a few more on my side than the other side. Uh, and folks on the left are guilty of that, too. You know, yeah, absolutely. Well, hundreds of, that's, yeah. that's their game. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's find some arguments that get our folks fired up uh, and. And that will rally people to the polls or to give more money or whatever it is that, that I mean, I hate to say it, that's a little bit the game that both sides are playing. But my question would be, how's that working? You know, how where's that left us? And aren't we supposed to be different? I mean, if you read if you read the Sermon on the Mount, the clear message is be different, be different than the rest of the world. And the reason I wrote this book is this. Christians aren't acting any different than anyone else when it comes to this hateful political environment that we're in and and we're supposed to be different so we need we need to do something different right and i would say with with that is that starts by we need we need to act differently you know when i mean the example like when the woman is caught in adultery and dragged before jesus in the crowd in the crowd jesus doesn't start with the woman he starts with the religious types, right? He starts with folks like you and me. He says, okay, you know, everybody that hadn't sinned, go ahead and throw the first stones. And interestingly, it says, and beginning with the older ones, they dropped their stones and walked away. I think one of the things that you, we realize the older we get is like, we realize like, I, I'm a sinful, broken person here. <laughs> That's part of the gospel, right? That's part of what Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I, I don't, Jesus, when Jesus comes and looks at a situation that's a problem, he doesn't say, wow, look, the world has gone bad. Isn't the world horrible? He says, the meat's gone bad. That's what the salt was for. And uh, unfortunately, the, the next line is a scary one. And if the salt is lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under feet, underfoot. 
I think that's my question is let's as believers, we look at a situation like this and we say, man, I can't believe how bad the world is. Let's start with us because that's where Jesus usually starts. You know, what's interesting about you using uh, that, that time in scripture. And I was having uh, lunch with a pastor just about a couple weeks ago. And he was using that example. He without sin, let him cast the first stone, which is often we see in cancel culture. They didn't hear the part of he without sin. They just right. throw the stones. Right. So what's your take on cancel culture? Shouldn't there be a redemptive uh, phase in all of that? Or what do you I do? Think? I mean, I love your word redemptive there because there's nothing redemptive about the battle back and forth and, and what happens in cancel culture now. You know, the other interesting thing, like you said, the point is, you know, he does come back and tell the woman, go and sin no more. Absolutely. You know, that, that part happens too, right? It's not just like, okay, starting with you religious types, you know, you th- throw the first ten stone. But he does actually personally address her at the end and say, hey, this isn't working. You need to change and repent, too. Uh, I, I'm, I, you know, the. I, I don't I don't see anything biblical about cancel culture. And so we have to be certain, again, starting with ourselves, that we're not doing that to other folks and say, oh, that crazy liberal. I'm, you know, they don't they're they're um, I, I'm, who, who would who would listen to them? Um you know, unfortunately for us, or fortunately, we're 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 with this idea that God says, "I've created man and woman in my image," and so then we have to treat people differently because of that. Uh, you know, that person who is the easiest for us to hate, that person, all of us right now. If I said, "Quick, ten seconds, think of who that person is," who it's really hard for you to love. We can all come to that person, or maybe two or three, really quick. And God said, you have to remember, Bill, that person is created in my image. And that changes everything. Absolutely. Wow. Let me ask you about this, because and, and it's interesting, because I've often talked about, and I know we kind of uh, touched on it a little bit. I often talk, talked about in my book, Take It For Granted, uh, how conservatism can win back the Americans that liberalism failed, how it seems as though folks on the left are continuously trying to take God out of whether it be our government documents or their political platforms. And you saw that happen in the DNC in 2016. You might have seen that earlier this month, Joe Biden became the first American president not to use the word God in the National Day of Prayer a proclamation. What was your reaction to that? You know, here's here's my thought is um, in in this country, um, folks who want to take faith out of the public square are missing the incredible history and role that people of faith have played in the public square because of their faith. The people who have built hospitals and started schools and all because of a trust and a faith in Christ. Okay. And we have founders, people like John Adams that said, you know, our constitution is holy. I'm going to mess up the, the, the quote here, but predicated on the idea of a belief in God. And it's, it's, you know, totally, totally unable to, to, uh, to govern the country without that. So this idea that somehow we're supposed to, uh, that our government is not supposed to uh, include people of faith acting on that faith. I, I don't know where they got that idea. That's, that's always been part of who we are. Now, I think the genius of the, of our founders also was, 
we're not going to have a government established religion because if when every time we do that it's the church that loses think about where the church is strong around the world and where it's not think about europe where the church is not very strong there used to be a state religion there and when the government becomes the church the church is the one that loses not the government do we really want to have a nation that is uh we'd love a nation that acts more christian but i don't think we want an official state religion because then it will become an official state religion instead of who you are and what you are. And then it'll change because of the political party, the person is running it. You got it. That's it. That's it. Now, it's hard to deny that culture is becoming increasingly secular, especially as the left controls so many of our institutions, our universities, the media, Hollywood. Do you find this trend troubling? And if so, what can be done about it? Well, I do. I mean, I think it, our culture has changed. And I, a couple of thoughts. First, for us, for us as believers, the wrong thing to do is to react out of fear. Mm. Okay? Why when is that? Rea- God is not giving us the spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Thank you. Like I said, uh, thanks. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, fear not is all through scripture. And we're not, we're not supposed to act like, oh, you know, we used to be the home team and now we're the visiting team and the visiting team, I, I'm, I'm afraid to play that role. It's just not who we're supposed to be. Should we be concerned that as the culture starts to change and our children, you know, grow up in a, a different world, should we be very mindful that we should? Um, and we need to realize we need to teach our children differently than we might have 30 years ago or 50 years ago in terms of what's okay and what's, what's not okay. Um, but again, I think the second thing is we need to say, you know, think about the dollars and the time that have spent on outreach, uh, for the Christian faith recently and the involvement that Christians have had in politics. And yet the world keeps kind of shifting away from us. And I think my point would be what we've tried, the way we've tried to do Christian politics has not worked because we haven't done it in a spirit of acting acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. Okay, I get I get that point. Now, the the tough part about it is, I think, when you have institutions that are controlled, one in which our children listen to, and these messages are amplified by way of media, TV shows, Instagram. You have people, especially in, in my age, I'm 34, I'll be 35 in December, but it's, it's for dating as an example, has become increasingly tough for a lot of folks because you got all this imagery plan, what you should look like, what you should be, what kind of music you should listen to. And it's allowed for people to have real strong identity crisis. You know, like it's just it's it's very hard for folks to really maintain their sense of who they are or what they grew up having when you have this amplification all the time. You open up your iPhone and an ad might pop up that says something that, you know, uh, us as Christians may not even want on there. Right. And, And the government can play a role in that part, you know, obviously. But it's just an interesting environment. So I think your I think your your observations are really good. One, what I'd say is, like I said, as you look at that world changing, like I said, I've got my kids are about your age. I've got grandkids. And I think about, man, look at the world they're going to grow up in with, you know, everything from, you know, the, the, the wildest 
worst kind of pornography available in two seconds on their phone to, to everything else that, that would happen. So what I'd say again is, should we be fearful about the cultural changes? No. Should we be very mindful of them for the very reason you said you bet? And would I tell you if you're getting ready to raise children that your children are going to grow up in a very different environment than you did and that my kids did? Yes. And so should you take a different approach to parenting because of that? Yes, you should. Now, since you brought up your, your children, I want to mention something that is in your book. And you may like, man, my book isn't out just yet, but it was in the it's just a sample copy. I should I wish I had a, a, a copy of it to read from. I only saw some of it. But um, you said and to Will, Hannah, Anna, David, Leah and Matt, as hard as it is to be in politics, it's even harder to be in a politician's family. Thanks for loving me so well and for standing up for me even when I didn't always deserve it. I love all of you. So what were the times that you can tell us where you felt like you didn't deserve them to stand up and love you in that way? Well, I mean, I'll give you a great example. Like I said, running for office is really hard. And, you know, one of the things we're supposed to be as believers is, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, thanksgiving, let your request request be known known to the Lord. So I can tell you, I spent a year and a half of campaigning running for governor anxious, you know, uh, thinking, oh, what happens if I lose? You know, what happens if my opponents say something bad about me? All the things that you feel personally vulnerable in, uh, you know, there's it's just as a politician, you feel all that as your as their family, you feel it even stronger. And so, you know, there's any number of times when I would say, um, you know, how did I do on being anxious for nothing? Not so good. How did I do on, you know, uh, it says, you know, but with humility, each of you consider others better than yourselves. How did I do on that? Mm, not always so good. I mean, I can go through lots of things that, um, and, and I remember one time, one of my, I was, listen, when you're in politics, it's a little like being a pastor. Everybody wants your time. Okay. And so you learn to have these quick conversations, you know, if you don't, you'll you'll never get home at night. Yeah, you tried to get out of a one with me. <laughs> I'm gonna give you the medium story, not the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, but like I said, I'm or I'm, you know, hey, I'm I'm walking into church and in between, you know, the the our security agent's car and my pew, fifty people try to stop you. Like, if I have all those conversations, I, I'm I'm never getting to worship. And same thing with if I'm going to a restaurant or whatever. And so you kind of learn to have these really quick conversations with people like, Hey, thanks, blah, blah, blah. And keep moving. And one time we're at Thanksgiving. So with, we're with my extended family and my son kind of grabbed me and goes, you realize you're having two minute conversations with everybody. Right. And I'm like, uh, no, I didn't, but, but you're hundred percent right. I had, I had, that had just become who I was and I wouldn't listen. I was kind of given the two or three minutes and move on to the next person deal. And, there's a good example of learning the wrong lessons. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. Back in the cell. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. 
sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Basically, what you were saying is, hey, there was some shortcomings as a believer, but you, you get better with time and you just continue to continue to push your best foot forward. And hopefully that's what redemption looks like, right? As we all start to look a little bit more like the God that we were created in the image of. Amen. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you have any regrets from your time in public office? Oh, man, I have a lot. I mean, you know, it's such a rare opportunity to get to do it that you want to make certain you take maximum advantage of. And there's lots of things that, oh, boy, if I'd have taken a different approach, we might have gotten that bill passed that lost in the legislature. Or if I'd have hired this person, we might have been able to provide better service. You, you make so many decisions in office, and some of them are good, but not all of them. But so do I have some regrets or things I'd do differently? Yes. Do I have any regret about doing it? No, I, I still consider it an incredible blessing to have had that calling for, for that period of my life. And, and that's good that you mentioned that. And I appreciate you, you telling me that. And as a person who's been a politician elected by the people and, of course, need to represent their constituents, as you, you did, and look at their best interests. What happens if a politician's conscience conflicts with what his constituents want? Do you ever did you ever have that experience as mayor or governor? Several times, and sometimes not just your sometimes your conscience, sometimes just your your thoughtful opinion. Because as governor, you might know more of the situation than everyone does, uh, and you might know the rest of the story. So there were times when you know the overwhelming you know volume of emails and phone calls was do this or don't do that that we did not do what those folks were saying. So sometimes it was for matters of conscience, what I what I felt to be the right thing. And sometimes it was just at the end of the day, my my judgment on that issue. And I wouldn't say it was necessarily a moral right or wrong, just I hear you, I understand, but given where I am and what I've learned about this situation, this is the one, the path that I think is right. And so ultimately the decision is with you and you have to weigh uh, where you where, what you feel is the best decision for your constituents and and how you feel is as a, a moral uh, reasoning is that right? I think you did a nice job of summarizing. Okay, now correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you did not vote for Trump in 2016. No, I'd said I was not going to uh, in uh, in 16 when some of the issues came up. Actually, what I said was this is when the whole 
scandal around Billy Bush and the the oh the, yes yes yes, yes, tape, yes. Cetera, I remember I that said, Saturday. Trust me. Yeah, I, I was on the phone did. with the RNC. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, at the time, I just said, "Hey, I, I I think it'd be better for the Republican Party at this time uh, if uh, you know if uh, Trump stepped aside and let Mike Pence be the candidate." I just at the time thought that uh, that would be the right thing for the country. Okay, so in 2020, you said that you would vote for him uh, if he was the nominee. So what what was the change there? Well, I, you know, listen, I, you know, anytime you talk about President Trump, that you could go into a long conversation, right, as you did earlier about, uh, you know, streaks and weaknesses. Um, and, and I don't I don't know if that's the that, that's something I want to delve into deeper. I, like I said, in 2016, I just felt really strongly, given the circumstances, that was not the right step forward for the Republican Party or for the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. But 2020, you had a change of heart and you supported him. Well, I, I, I'm not sure, certain he would count me as among his most fervent supporters. <laughs> well, <that> no, he, <laughs> I'm sure he was. He and he has not. a good long memory, too. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 know he, I know he does. Well, for my final question, I want to ask you about the future of the Republican Party. Do you think the party is a, uh, in a good place today and moving forward? What should the GOP be doing to put itself in a better yeah, position? I think we're I think it's a really important decision point. There are certain things that I think the party has always been strong about that I want us to stay strong about. I, I believe in, you know, I believe the the market based economy we're in is a lot better than a socialist based economy. I believe in the Republican Party's position on on matters around um, life and choice, uh, pro-life and versus pro-choice. I believe um, the historic stance we put on uh, America playing a leading role in the world are, are really important. Um, I don't think we've historically done a good job. What I think is what I think President Trump realized was there's a whole lot of America that feels left behind. And they look at the Democrat Party and say they're talking about transgender bathroom uses and that's not where I am. And they look at the Republican Party and say, feels like a lot of country club types. That's not me. And they felt, you know, hey, this world's changing fast. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm being left behind here. Nobody's been concerned about me. And I, I don't think we can be that party and still be effective. So Republicans need to do a better job at outreach and bringing more people into the tent, especially African-Americans. I think Trump was really gifted. When it comes to that, obviously, he had some missteps and some things he perhaps shouldn't have said. Um, however, there was no candidate or president that I've seen that talked about black folks and what he was going to do for them so much. And it obviously paid dividends when it came to election night 2020. Not as great as some people might have predicted, but certainly more than Democrats and most media expected. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that was what surprised a lot of people in the election result is that not just with uh, blacks, but with Hispanics, the vote was a lot, was a lot different than what people. If if you ask why the election was closer than people were expecting, I think that's it. Well, Governor, thank you for joining Out Loud with Gianno Caldwell, Governor Bill Haslam, and I certainly appreciate it you, your time uh, today. And I think one day we're going to work together in some capacity. We'll do something. But I, I, I hope that we can stay in touch sincerely. No, I've, I've loved the conversation. Thanks for letting me be on the show. I want to thank Governor Bill Haslam again for a great interview. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions for me, please email me at outloud at gingrich360.com and I'll try to answer them in our future episodes. 
And please sign up for my monthly newsletter at gingrich360.com slash out loud. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Parlor at Gianno Caldwell. And if you're interested in learning more about my story, please pick up a copy of my best-selling book titled Taken for Granted, How Conservatism Can Win Back the Americans That Liberalism Failed. Special thanks to our producer, John Cassio, researcher Aaron Klingman, and executive producers Debbie Myers and speaker Newt Gingrich, all part of the Gingrich 360 Network. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.